Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking about the worst supplements of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 80 of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we are talking the worst supplements of all time, and it's kind of hard to choose, Nicole, which supplements <laughs> to add in this category. I think I wanted to go with, I mean, listen, the worst supplements of all time is subjective, to be honest. And I think what I chose were things that were around for a long time or a pretty significant amount of time that had a pretty big buzz around them that had little to no research to support the claims on it. So we'll run through what those supplements are. We'll also run through some recommendations, some practical recommendations for what to actually do in regards to some of those claims on the supplements and how to actually achieve those results, whether it be fat loss, increasing testosterone, uh, increasing lean muscle mass, and some uh, practical things that you can do now that are actually based on science that will help you to achieve these results. So Nicole, I think we're going to yes. start with supplement number one, which is Tribulus, also known as Tribulus Terrestris which has been proposed for many, many years to be a testosterone booster. And mm -hmm. a lot of things have been proposed to be testosterone boosters. I remember way after the time of Tribulus or the emergence of Tribulus, there was deaspartic acid, mm -hmm. which also had mixed reviews. And then what we found is in some studies, it elevated testosterone. In some studies, it actually in higher doses decreased testosterone. And mm -hmm. in other studies, it did absolutely nothing. So the results are too mixed and the study designs really aren't consistent when it comes to viewing results in something like deaspartic acid. And tribulus is something that has been proposed to increase testosterone. Now, it's not entirely a crappy product in terms of male enhancement, because there are some things that we do see in the research in terms of erectile strength or sperm count or, you know, things with from people that are, uh, I guess, suffering from male people looking for male enhancement, I guess I would say performance speaking performance, performance in the bedroom, which okay. is obviously important, probably for mental health, too. <laughs> well, let me ask you this before you get into the actual supplement itself. Why do people want to take test boosters? They want to build muscle. It's like, why do people take anabolic steroids? They want to build muscle. Mm -hmm. I will say that one of the things that, you know, in the in the 90s, right in the mid to late 90s, the one of the things that really emerged was pro hormone supplements. Yeah. And those were really effective in increasing testosterone because essentially those were just precursors to hormones. Mm -hmm. The issue with those is they ended up getting banned by the FDA. And there was this whole anytime something is going to increase your testosterone. If something claims to increase your testosterone and it's been on the market for long enough mm -hmm. and hasn't been removed by the FDA, yeah, that means it doesn't not, work. Yeah. So one of the biggest issues with pro hormones, they worked, they were so effective, but it was actually worse Abuse. for you. It was worse for you than taking anabolic steroids. Yeah, but see, don't you think like, see, I always think of it this way. If something actually does work, or at least this is how I say it to clients, and it does potentially have the room or growth or whatever the, the goal is, there's always room for abuse. Like nobody takes things like if there's a test booster that actually worked, like say we hypothetically had a supplement that actually did do what it was claiming to do. Don't you think that people would abuse it? I mean, how many people do you know that want to boost the testosterone that would be like, OK, I'll just take enough to boost it a little. No, they're going to they're going to want to take it. So that not only does it boost the testosterone, but it goes through the roof and they can maximize that to its fullest. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah, but with just like anything, if you're smart enough about it, you're going to know that there's a point of diminishing returns. Well, you said the word smart and, and there <laughs> is 
also, I mean, we see this with pre-workouts now with people yeah. dry scooping 10 scoops of pre-workout because, well, right. if one scoop does it, then let me take 10 and then they end up in the hospital. In the emergency they, room. Exactly. That's my so, point. Yes. But I will say just in general, pro-hormones, they were precursors to testosterone and the, the toll on your liver in having to convert that pro-hormone into an active hormone, mm -hmm. that was actually worse than your body processing if you were just to take testosterone in and of itself. Yeah. So we yeah. found that the side effects and the implications of it were major. So those were taken off the market. And Tribulus is something that it's still on the market. I still see it in new products that are emerging. Yeah. And people still like there's still a, a hype and a buzz over it. And I'm like, this stuff does doesn't do anything for you. OK, so from a research standpoint, tell us about it. So from a research standpoint, we've got a study here, the effect of five weeks of tribulus supplementation on muscle strength and body composition during preseason training in elite rugby league players. The study conducted in these rugby players, they were males ages 19 to 20 or 21. Uh, and there was no changes. There were absolutely no changes seen uh, between a placebo and uh, the active group in this study. During the five weeks, they took 450 milligrams of tribulus daily. We've got another study here, prospective analysis on the effect of botanical medicine, tribulus terrestris, on serum testosterone level and semen parameters in males with unexplained infertility. We've got two studies that are actually similar in this category, both with 30 men, both using 750 milligrams of tribulus extract three times a day, divided into three different doses. Uh, first study here, there were no significant differences between baseline and follow-up for serum testosterone, free testosterone, luteinizing hormone, sperm concentration, or sperm motility. Then we've got this other study here with 30 men with manifestations of partial androgen deficiency and androgen hormone deficiency, erectile dysfunction, and low libido. They took 750 milligrams per day of tribulus divided into three doses for three months. Significant increases were seen in relative to baseline for testosterone and free testosterone, but not for luteinizing hormone, which luteinizing hormone is something that is uh, produced in your testes. That is a precursor for testosterone. You, you have like luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. Now, th this is where conflict comes in, where like we see some small studies that will show effect and then other small studies that won't show effect. And then we have to look at study design. So uh, the majority of the body of research, and I really didn't find any like systemic reviews on this stuff. The majority of the research on this stuff points to, hey, like it may help with sperm count. It may help with erectile function and things of that sort, but it really doesn't help you to increase testosterone. And Nicole, you and I have talked about what the important components are for testosterone. And I, I think what I'll say is this. Oftentimes people go to supplements and this will be pretty much the same all across the board for all of the supplements that we talk about today is they think that the supplement is what's going to do it for them. Right. Yes. And what I'll say is even if you're taking a pro hormone or testosterone replacement therapy, or, you know, you're like a bodybuilder that's taking, I know so many guys in the gym that would take testosterone and take anabolic steroids and not change much. And yes, they would get some results out of it, but you're still not getting the results yeah. that you could get had you have been coupling it with the things that are going to produce those results anyway. So with that being said, one of the number one things that I recommend when it comes to increasing testosterone is first and foremost, exercise on a consistent basis. And when I'm talking about exercise, I'm talking about those heavy lifts that are going to produce a huge hormonal output like squats and deadlifts, all of your mm -hmm. big lifts, bent over rows, bench press, bench press, even a leg press, right? A heavy yeah. leg press is going to do yeah. it for you. So you want to look at, I'm working out on a consistent basis. And you also want to look at from the other end, right? You don't want to undertrain, but you also don't want to overtrain, overtrain. because yeah. overtraining leads to depletion in testosterone levels. Another thing that'll lead to depletion in testosterone levels is we see this in natural bodybuilders, right? Too long of a calorie deficit mm -hmm. or too much of a calorie deficit for too long a period of time. Yep. So this is where we want to kind of look at it and say, okay, well, are we eating adequate food? Are we getting adequate fats in the diet? We know saturated fats are important for producing hormones because uh, testosterone is a derivative, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, right? All of your steroid hormones, they're derivatives of cholesterol, specifically when you're consuming 
saturated fats. Now, obviously, you don't want to eat too much saturated fat because that could be detrimental, but you do want at least 10% of your diet coming from set. You do want some saturated fat. So looking at your fatty acid intake, like if you're in a calorie deficit and you're having very low fat intake, that's something that you might want to look at in terms of your testosterone and your hormone levels. So diet is super important and exercise is important too. What we notice with people that overexercise, like people who are like marathon runners or cyclists, they generally tend to have lower testosterone levels. Well, I was just going to say they literally run themselves into the ground. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I think any uh, elite competitive athlete, somebody who's right. doing something to that extreme point there, unless you're taking exogenous forms of testosterone, then you're yeah. going to have some uh, decrease in testosterone levels. Exactly. It's about that whole balance. We talk about balance all the time, but it is finding the sweet spot for the individual. And then when you talk about taking a supplement, I think it's interesting that a lot of people that want that extra edge that think the supplement is going to have it. Like what you were saying before about the supplement being the thing that does it is they just don't understand how it actually works in the body or doesn't work in the body, however you look at it. And so they overlook all of the basic foundational things that you're talking about now. Yeah. And the other thing is sleep. And mm -hmm. I can't stress this enough. Most, so many people don't sleep enough and they try to train and exercise and diet and, and do what they have to do. But Sleep is such a crucial part of your testosterone and growth hormone because that those are things that your body's manufacturing. Both test and growth hormone are both things that your body's manufacturing during your deep sleep. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough just to get X number of hours of sleep. You want to feel refreshed in the morning. And what I tell people is anywhere from like seven to nine is the range. Like for myself, seven is great. For some people, they need eight. Some people are higher functioning at six hours. Yeah. I, don't, I think those people are far few in between, but there are people out there that, you know, you have to be real with yourself. How are you feeling when you wake up in the morning? Are you feeling refreshed? Are you sleep, getting adequate sleep? And the quality of sleep is important. How deep are you getting into that sleep? And if you feel like you're not refreshed or maybe you're waking up at night, that's something that I often get with people who come to me and they're like, you know, one of the questions on our, on our intake form is how many hours do you sleep? Do you have trouble falling asleep or, or staying asleep? If you have trouble staying asleep, that's a, a sleep wake cycle thing, right? Where you're breaking that cycle because every time that you wake up and you're, you're falling back asleep, you're resetting that, right? So when you go to bed, you go into a deep sleep cycle, you come out of it, you go into your REM sleep, then you go into a deeper sleep cycle, and then you come out of it, you go into your REM sleep, and then you go even deeper up to a certain point. If you break that cycle, you're starting over again and you're never really going fully into that deep sleep. And this is where I'll recommend for people, hey, you know what, maybe try a magnesium glycinate because mm -hmm. that is going to help to regulate your sleep-wake cycle and it's going to help to put you into a deeper sleep. And hopefully we can get you to stay asleep the entire night. Yeah. Recovery, rest, sleep, all of the above. Yeah. It's just sleep is probably hands down the most important thing yeah. when it comes to hormones, um, because it's a big stressor on the system when you're not sleeping. And mm -hmm. the other, some of the other things you can do is, uh, zinc, zinc supplementation. If you're deficient and we see deficiency with age. So if you go like above, like male above 40, they typically have, it shows that they have lower, they're more likely to have lower levels of, uh, zinc. So we look at zinc and we say, okay, well, if you're, if you take zinc in, then you may have increases in testosterone. The other thing about zinc is that it acts as an aromatase inhibitor. So what that will do is it will decrease estrogen. And by decreasing estrogen, you're also decreasing sex hormone binding globulin, which is something that is bound, it binds to your sex hormones, mm -hmm. both testosterone and estrogen and prevents you from having more free testosterone. Because when we're looking at testosterone levels, what we're looking at is we want to look at your free testosterone versus your sex hormone binding globulin, your, 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 um, your bound testosterone. We also have albumin bound to testosterone. So we want to look at those levels as well. And we want to say, well, how much testosterone or total testosterone do you have versus how much free testosterone? And if you have a higher ratio of sex hormone binding globulin or bound testosterone, to free testosterone, then we might want to have some strategies in place to change that for you. So, yeah. I mean, there are things that you can do 
that are proven by science to increase your testosterone or even free up testosterone and not have to go to these supplements that don't, they, they don't do anything. Like tribulus is one of those things that I've said since I was, I don't know, 19 working at the vitamin store. Like that shit just doesn't work. <laughs> I've not, I mean, we've known since then and there hasn't what? been any new information, groundbreaking information that's come out. Everything's conflicting in the research. Yeah. When you, I have a question for you, just as a guy, when you go to the doctors and you get a physical, do they naturally test your testosterone levels or do you have to ask for that? No, you have to ask. We have to request you that. Do. Yeah. And we do have, listen, we do have issues in this country, which we need to figure out. I don't know if it's food mm -hmm. related, if it's lack of activity, but Stress. we do have, we, we do see issues where men have generally higher testosterone levels. We also, I mean, sorry, lower testosterone. Lower. Levels. We, it's, it's almost like this, uh, I don't know, like a testosterone epidemic here. We also see men with higher estrogen levels. Why do I think we see men with higher estrogen levels? I think just because we're getting fatter and well, absolutely. Well, this is why I asked, just asked you, what do you test when you go to the doctors as a male? Do they check this? Like, listen, I'm a female at 48. I've been having my estrogen and progesterone checked on now since I was third. Well, earlier, even 35, just so that I had markers to check to see if things change, decrease, if there's, you know, anything that we have to be careful of. And I, I guess I was just curious, thinking from a male standpoint, when you go, do they even look, do they even check to see if it's changed? No, that's something change? that you're going to have to ask for. And in addition to that, your primary care physician typically knows nothing about that. So yeah. you, they're going to look at it and they're going to be like, I don't know what's wrong. They're going to send you to an endocrinologist because that's yeah. where you're going to need to go. And so typically a lot of times the solution is you, if, if the doctor is, if, if you go to somebody who's really versed in this topic and is really good at what they do, and they've read a ton of research, the first course of action is going to be lifestyle factors. Well, that's my whole point, right? If you go to the doctors and you're feeling you have symptoms of quote unquote low testosterone and your doctor hasn't either been checking, doesn't know what your normal levels are or what your levels were five years ago, even if they didn't know that, right? Obviously their first course of action is going to say diet, exercise, stress, blah, 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 sleep. Yes. Now, but if so here's the thing too, is we also have to define what's low and for who, right? So well, exactly. We, we, when we look at testosterone levels, we say, okay, well the normal range is right around like 250 to 1100, which is a big range, right? You could be at the bottom of that or you could right. be at the, at the top end of that. And there are differences with individuals in terms of how many androgen receptors they have. Mm -hmm. And somebody with lower testosterone, but more androgen receptors will be perfectly fine. And then somebody with higher testosterone with less androgen receptors won't. So for some people, that lower end of the threshold, let's say there are 300, which I would look at and say, okay, well, that's technically on the lower end of the spectrum, but it's still in normal range. If you feel fine and you don't present with symptoms, exactly. then you're okay. But if you're at 300 and you're like, I'm tired, yeah. I can't, I can't get, I can't get an erection, you know, like sexual dysfunction. I am just fatigued all the time. My brain is foggy, right? If you present with symptoms and maybe we want you at the higher end of the spectrum, but the initial solution is always going to be dietary, mm -hmm. exercise, lifestyle, stress, sleep, that's what you want to tackle first. And you want to make those changes. And I know that these are more difficult changes to make. It's easier of to course. take a pill, no shit. But if something isn't <laughs> working right in your body, that means that there's something that you're not doing potentially that you, you can do this on your own and be okay. Now, the yeah. second course of action would be, and this is where I get frustrated. The second course of action would be uh, Clomid therapy, Clomiphene citrate which is something that increases the production of the precursors, which are luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, which will then cause your body to it'll kind of kickstart that production of testosterone. If your lifestyle factors were kind of where they should be. The last course of action is, okay, well, maybe your body's just not producing enough testosterone and maybe you just need testosterone therapy. But I think some of the issue is many times you go to a doctor and they'll, they'll just default to, Okay, well, we'll just give you some testosterone, but you don't well, know. Of course, where the it's issue. the quickest. Listen, people don't go to the doctors when by the time they get to the doctor, they're desperate. They want change. And like everything else, they want it to happen quickly. So the fastest way to do that is to just go, okay, here, take this. And then it, it could work. 
Or we can take the next six months to take a step back and take a look at your lifestyle and make those changes and then go to that if it's the last resort. But that it's like everything else. Everybody wants things quick and fast. And well, that's the know. reason that they'll believe regardless of how many times I exactly. beat my head against the wall that something like tribulus works. All right. So moving along, when it comes to testosterone, you want to look at lifestyle factors first and you can optimize your testosterone naturally without having to go and go to these measures and take supplements that, you know, like the aspartic acid or tribulus terrestris that really isn't going to, it's one of the worst supplements of all time. I'll just leave it well, at that. Well, okay. Wait, one last thing. The part, what I was going to say a minute ago is if you aren't getting, if you are, if you don't know where your baseline is for testosterone before you take a test booster, how do you actually know it even was worked? Right? So Part of the reason why I think it's important to bring up the whole medical side of this from a doctor's standpoint is if you are going to take something, wouldn't you want to know that it actually is doing something? People take, you just said it, people take this stuff blindly thinking it's just going to work with no actual scientific backing to show that it's actually working. Yeah. What right? I would so, say, that, I would say this, the, the flip side to that is if oftentimes, you know, when sometimes people will take a supplement and then they'll get really regimented with their routine, their nutrition, right. And their, then, right. And then, so I'm like, all right, well, even if you tested before and after and you took it, it would have to be a, a drastic increase in testosterone for me to believe that it wasn't the lifestyle factors that you changed because you took a supplement and decided, all right, because I'm taking the supplement placebo effect, I'm, I took the supplement. Now I'm going to train harder and I'm going to stay on point with my diet, my nutrition and everything. And that could actually slightly elevate your testosterone levels by just making those changes. And it wasn't the pill. Well, that's my whole point about doing it naturally, then doing the lifestyle testing again, to see if it worked and then using the supplement as a last resort and seeing if that actually tops off anymore. I just guess my, my whole point when we talk to talk about worse supplements is that if you don't know the beginning point the action and then the end point, you really can't make claim that something has totally quote unquote worked. That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. Moving along. And the, I think it's the next two, the next two, I will say, I just always had this thing where if it was recommended by Dr. Oz, I knew if, you were going to bring if, this up. <laughs> if we, if we went through a list of the history of the supplements recommended by Dr. Oz, you can probably just make the worst supplements of all time list from that. Mm -hmm. Dr. Oz, to me, it's like, dude, you're not a doctor. You're a TV personality. And you so a lot of the things that the, and I've I've listened back to this and I've read a few articles coming into this podcast of if you listen to how he speaks about things, this is a miracle. Right. And here's. Well, he calls raspberry ketones miracle. Fat raspberry ketones, and way to jump ahead because we're going to go Sorry. through Garcinia Cambosia first. But <laughs> he he says it's a miracle fat loss uh, supplement, and it's the you have to be careful, especially if you're a doctor in the public eye. Mm -hmm. You have to be careful about the way that you're delivering information because somebody's yeah. just going to be like, "All right, well, cool. I don't need to diet because that's what people want. They just I don't need to diet." Dr. Oz said this was a miracle. If it's such a miracle, then you the whole then, world yeah. be taking it and, and everybody and, be thin and you don't need a calorie deficit. But that's not the case. So let's get into one of the first supplements that he recommended on his show, which is Garcinia Cambogia, which Garcinia Cambogia is a fruit that's been traditionally used to enhance the culinary experience of a meal. Beyond that, it's got limited medicinal use. It is thought that because it's a very good source of hydroxycitric acid, which is structurally related to citric acid. This may help in weight control. And one of the mechanisms that's been proposed is a few mechanisms. So one of the mechanisms of action is inhibiting an enzyme called citric acid lysase, which is required in the synthesis of fatty acids in uh, de novo lipogenesis, right? So um, at least in rats, there's evidence of suppressed de novo lipogenesis uh, that's been noted with oral consumption of hydroxycitric acid. And it appears in rats, and this is where kind of the information came from, it appeared initially in rats to reliably reduce food intake and body weight. So wait, it reduced food intake, which then limits. Well, it yes, but one of the proposed mechanisms is appetite suppressant. 
Okay, gotcha. We look at it and we're like, okay, well, this works in rats. But here's the thing it's like, then you're taking rats studies and you're throwing it onto humans. So let's get into humans. Studies in humans, for the most part, they failed to replicate this. Some isolated studies did note uh, weight, uh, weight loss, but it appears to be very variable and unreliable. And many of the studies reported subjective appetite decrease. So how do you really like, are you just a- asking somebody like, are you hungry? Right. And then there, there tended to be a lot of uh, dropouts recorded, very high dropout rates in these studies. In talking about this supplement, you know, it's, and I've seen people do this all the time. I see people on Instagram say, Hey, this supplement in this recent rat study showed X, Y, and Z. And I'm not going to mention the pages that, that I'm thinking of right now, but you know, some of these supplement manufacturers that will say, okay, well, this works in rats, so it must work in humans. You've got to test the stuff in humans first, because what we find is it doesn't do what it says it's going to do. We've got a randomized double-blind placebo control trial using obese but healthy individuals, separated participants into two groups, 400 milligrams of Garcinia cambogia and a placebo. The Garcinia cambogia was standardized to contain at least 50% of the active ingredient, the hydroxy citric acid, and both groups were put on a 1200 calorie diet. They used bioelectrical impedance which was used to assess their total weight, their fat mass, and their fat-free mass. They also looked at hunger, desire to eat, prospective consumption, like how much food do you think you could eat right now, and fullness were evaluated by having participants indicate the intensity of the sensation they ascribe to each on a nine-point category scale, each waking hour for one day at baseline and during weeks four, eight, and 12. So the results of this study, a a statistically significant loss of weight was actually observed over the 12-week study period in both the active and the placebo group. The mean loss with the active treatment was 3.7 to 3.1 kilograms, whereas the value was 2.4 to 2.9 kilograms for the placebo group. They both lost a decent amount of weight on a 1200 calorie diet. The other thing to note is that no significant treatment effects were observed on what the claim is, because one of the biggest claims on the supplement was appetite suppression. There was no significant effect observed on hunger ratings, mean ratings of desire to eat, prospective consumption, fullness, or sensation of thirst, stomach growling, headache, distraction, or irritability. The study also cited that prior support for an appetite effect was based on anecdote, and data interpreted without a control treatment or a pure formula of Garcinia cambogia. And uh, this is this was one of the other things is that there had been studies that showed that Garcinia cambogia was effective in a blend with a supplement that had things like caffeine. Yeah. Things like uh, ephedrine. Right. So, like, of course, you're going to get those outcomes like you don't know what is the effective ingredient there. That is like similar to supplements like, and I should probably add this to the list, like hydroxycut. Yeah. That had like 50 different ingredients in it. You don't know which one works. You don't know how they interact with each other. And then you end up with liver liver failure caused by a supplement that is supposed to be for weight loss. And now you lost your liver. Yeah. Listen, this is what I'm going to say about fat burners. Anything that forces your body forces in any capacity, if it's a small amount of extra, like an extra two pounds over 12 weeks or an extra five pounds, two to five pounds. If it forces your body to do that because you have this extra edge with a supplement like this, one, I don't think that's enough of a risk with this a supplement to take for maybe two to five pound difference that you could just wait a couple of extra weeks for to take the same two to five pounds off in, in a normal progression of a healthy program. The second thing is if it forces your body to do it, it will not last. You know what I mean? Like I say this to people all the time. I get questions about fat burners all the time, especially because I've done a bikini show. Did you take them? No, I did not. And the reason why is because if I was going to take something that forced my body to burn fat, there's always a pendulum swing in the other direction. So if I force it to burn more fat, in my mind, it's going to swing back the other way and potentially lose momentum. So I'd rather take here's the thing approach. Here's the thing too, Nicole, to add to your point is that both groups had to be on a 1200 calorie diet anyway. Exactly. That's my whole point. 
And in addition to that, both groups were just as hungry. So the appetite yes. suppression effects, like they weren't, they, they didn't exist. Yeah. And anybody that I know that have, has taken fat burners, just so our listeners know, for bikini shows or even just to lose body fat in an aggressive way, it always, the pendulum always swings the other way. Because if you do a 1200 calorie diet and you take this fat burner and it gives you that extra edge of like three pounds more or a little bit drier because you're not holding as much water, when you go back and eat more and reverse diet and you get rid of them, the pendulum swings in the other direction. I just feel like a lot of what we what we try and force with these types of supplements is again, it goes right back to faster, quicker, more dramatic results. And we very rarely think about what the other end of what the other end of the spectrum looks like. And listen, I'll, I'll say this. I, there there is a place where I do think that fat burners are good when you're in a calorie deficit and it's not for burning fat. It's actually for energy because when you're in a calorie deficit for a longer period of time, let's say these competitors, we used to do this all the time. We would take stimulants because yeah, these fat burners have stimulants in them. They keep you going when you're so depleted. I think yeah. that's really the only function because you've got things like caffeine. You've got well, um, I just have coffee or, or not really ephedrine anymore, but you've got synephrine, which has um, some, uh, you know, energy carrying capacity. Yeah, to that but too. that's also when that's also when most competitors well, they still do it now, but I guess they do they do these heavy calorie deficits for a long period of time. So over time, yeah, of course, your energy starts to, to swing. But if you're doing it in a way that's, you know, a little safer, it you can have a cup of coffee for crying out loud. Like I just never understood well, the need would, to have. I would argue for myself being a regular coffee drinker, sometimes coffee just doesn't do it. Well, <laughs> that is true for someone like me that doesn't have it all the time. It kicks me into high gear, but. But that's my whole point, though. You just basically proved everything that I'm saying. If you're someone that drinks caffeine, caffeine all the time and then you take you take it away and you get that sluggish, tired kind of hit a wall and then you have it again. If people were utilizing that in a way that's going to be a little bit more effective, the caffeine part of it may be something that you could utilize to help as opposed to supplements that, you know, are not really tested on humans that we don't have any real research on and that we really don't, you know, they do these research, they do these studies, but they never study the other end of the spectrum. Like what happens when the rats stop taking it? They probably well, died. Well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but All do right. you know what I'm saying? Like you so, feel me, right? Yeah. Moving along. Uh, we've got another study here with uh, uh, glycine max leaves, which are basically uh, soybean leaves that are high in glycine. Garcinia cambogia and uh, placebo, which actually showed absolutely no changes in energy intake or no significant differences in body weight, body mass index, and waist to hip ratio after 10 week supplementation with all of them as compared to, or both of those supplements as compared to a placebo. Uh, and then we've got a third study that showed some small changes in visceral fat accumulation, but found no changes in weight or BMI. Um, but there were some pretty significant effects on the uh, visceral fat there. The study results are mixed. And this is what I'll say, like some of the studies might sound like it's like, oh, well, that kind of works, but it's when it's so mixed and so varied. And then when you look at some of the way that some of these studies were done, you're like, okay, well now I see why it probably doesn't work. And now I see why there hasn't been a study on this stuff since uh, maybe like 10, over 10 years ago. All right. So moving along, the next supplement is raspberry ketones, another Dr. Oz special here. So raspberry ketones, uh, it's a compound extracted from red raspberries that is usually used as a scenting or flavoring agent for foods and cosmetics. It's found naturally in many foods, most notably raspberries. And raspberry ketones are also used commercially and synthesized or produced via bacteria. So Oftentimes they're not even getting it from raspberries. They're just having bacteria that is synthesizing the compound because it's probably easier to do it that way and a lot cheaper to do it that way. Um, but due to its high demand in cosmetics and as a flavoring agent, it's estimated that intake by the average human is already around 0.42 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So, I mean, we get this stuff in makeup and food flavorings already. So I don't really see a need to supplement with it. 
Now, raspberry ketone is vaguely similar to the chemical structure of synephrine and ephedrine, which we know ephedrine is a central nervous stimulator and it does have effects on fat loss. And it was too good, like so good that it was abused and got banned. Just like Nicole, you talked about with the, uh, mm -hmm. the pro hormones and test boosters and things like that. There's mixed evidence as to whether raspberry ketone can stimulate lipolysis, which is fatty acid breakdown. One study in an adipocyte cell culture model, and here's really one of the biggest things that the biggest indicators for me with the raspberry ketones is that a lot of the studies were done in cell cultures, right? So at a cellular level, we can see changes in adipocytes or fat cells, and we can see them release fatty acids, release glycerol, which is an indicator of lipolysis. So when you look at it in a Petri dish in, in vitro, you're saying, okay, well, wow, this is, this is great. This works. But then when you try and replicate that in humans, you don't see much of a difference. So the one human study, the one single human study to investigate the effects of raspberry ketone found a fat loss of 7.8% relative to the 2.8% in placebo and weight loss of 2% relative to 0.5% in a placebo without detectable differences in caloric intake. The study was highly confounded, however, as raspberry ketone was co-administered with several other supplements in a metabo formulation. Raspberry ketone paired with caffeine, capsaicin, which is found in, it's like a red pepper extract, kind of heats you up, gets your body going, right? That, that's something that has a little bit of uh, research on it. Uh, garlic, ginger, and synephrine from uh, like a bitter orange extract, right? So you've got all of these compounds in the one human study that we have on raspberry ketones. You've got yeah. all of these compounds wrapped into one supplement. How do you know that it's ra raspberry ketones? You don't. So that's bullshit supplement number three. <laughs> and then the next one is something that I've talked about several times on this podcast, which is L-carnitine. Yeah, we've now I'm going to go back into the theory of how L-carnitine could possibly work and where I think that theory came from in fatty acid metabolism. In order to shuttle fat into the mitochondria, you need something called the carnitine shuttle. So the carnitine shuttle helps to it binds to that fatty acid and it mobilizes it to the mitochondria where it can get used for energy. So the thought process with L-carnitine is, well, if I have more that should be better because now I'm mobilizing more fat. The problem with this theory is that your body creates enough L-carnitine from the components that you have in your body already. And the carnitine, after it's done shuttling the fatty acid into the cell or into the mitochondria, gets recycled and then reattached and does its job all over again. So you've got it twofold. A, your body's creating enough L-carnitine and B, your body's recycling the carnitine that it's already been using. So what we find is, yeah, in theory, it would make sense that L-carnitine would promote more fat mobilization and therefore more fat loss. But we don't see this in the research. We've got some studies on L-carnitine that show for like type 2 diabetics, uh, increases in insulin sensitivity, which could be beneficial. But outside of that, from a fat loss standpoint, we don't really see much changes. We've got a meta-analysis of randomized control trials that investigated the effects of L-carnitine supplementation on weight, BMI, waist circumference, body fat percentage, um, and fat mass in overweight or obese participants. 43 studies were included and 2,703 participants among them. When we're talking about fat mobilization, the most important thing that we're looking at in this is body fat reduction, because that's what we're trying to change. We're trying to lose body fat. We don't see statistically significant numbers when it comes to reducing body fat and supplementing with L-carnitine. The next thing, Nicole, is we're going to switch gears a little bit here from the fat loss supplements, the three that we just mentioned, and we're going to talk about branched chain amino acids. Okay. Now, branched branch chain amino acids, the three are leucine, valine, and isoleucine. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that with people who have low dietary protein intake, a BCA supplement can promote muscle protein synthesis and increase muscle growth over time. But this is, again, this goes to, okay, well, what is the root of your problem? The root of your problem isn't that you're not getting enough BCAs. The root of your problem is that 
you're, you're not, not getting well. protein. So I've had many clients over the years that say, Hey, should I supplement with a BCA supplement? And I'm like, well, we've focused on your protein intake already. And if you, especially if you're getting a large amount of your protein from animal sources, those highly bioavailable sources of protein, mm -hmm. meat, fish, eggs, dairy, chicken, poultry, right? If you're getting a decent amount of protein from those sources, you're going to get enough branched chain amino acids. Now, yeah. specifically, when we look at branched chain amino acids, one of the big players in terms of increasing muscle protein synthesis is leucine. Leucine is shown to have great effects on increasing muscle protein synthesis and the ability to build muscle. But leucine is also very high in if you drink whey protein. Mm -hmm. Leucine is very high if you eat eggs. Leucine is very high if you eat meat. So the goal when it comes to branched chain amino acids, I don't think that they're necessary for you to take. I think they're largely hype because if you're in the gym working out day to day and you're really concerned about muscle protein synthesis, what is it that you're going to do is you're going to strategize your protein. How much protein am I getting in and what is my protein feeding frequency with that all covered? A BCA supplement is not shown to add any additional benefit on top of that right. because just like eating protein, there's only a certain number of grams of protein that you can eat in a day that's going to produce a positive outcome. And then you get to a certain point where I don't know if I'd call it diminishing returns, but I'd probably say just no returns. Just not doing anything more. And I think this goes back to time. Like, again, with everything, with all the supplements we're talking about, it's a timing thing. You can increase your protein or get adequate protein or create a protein anchored approach to your meals and do that consistently for the next 10 years. And then you will reach your goal. Or you can, you know, take branch chain amino acids every day for 30 days and think the, the miracle supplements are going to make everything happen in 30 days. It's not going to do anything. Now, no. I'll say there might be potentially two scenarios where branch chain amino acids may be okay. And one is what I do. I flavor my water with it. Just going to say to drink your water. And two, if you're in a large calorie deficit and you want to maintain elevated levels of muscle protein synthesis and you want to decrease your risk for protein degradation and breaking down muscle tissue, then like I would always, when I was competing, I would I have it in my yeah. water bottle when I'm at the gym on the treadmill doing cardio because I didn't yeah. want to lose muscle in the process. So that's where it may be beneficial. Yeah, I definitely used them when I competed more for your first thing, which is I, I ended up being really I had a real hard time drinking my water when I was in such a low calorie um, deficit. And so they just it was like taste. It really just helped me drink. Yeah. And especially nowadays. So when I was first starting bodybuilding, the two things with the branch chain amino acids, they didn't taste as good as they do now. Mm -hmm. And they also didn't have the, the consistent, like they didn't mix well yeah. in the water. They'd yeah, sit at the bottom powdery. and I'd have to yeah. shake and drink and shake and drink. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, I mean, I do the, um, it's like candy. I do the beyond raw. Uh, it's like the Ar Arnold Palmer kind of like, uh, iced tea lemonade. Oh yeah. And I that, that good. to me is that's bomb.com right there. That's mine's strawberry burst, strawberry juice burst, like a strawberry. Uh, you know what actually is really good. Speaking of strawberry. Starburst. Speaking of Starburst. Mm -hmm. And I just drink it for taste. And sometimes if I'm like deep in the studying and coffee's just not enough for me, the only thing I don't like about it is there's beta alanine. So I feel kind of tingly, You're but tingly. <laughs> the C4. Yeah. And I've never been a huge fan of C4 pre-workout, but the C4 RTDs, the cans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The they have the Starburst flavor. It's so good. It's got like a hint of Starburst, but it actually tastes like it reminds me of Capri Sun. Yeah, I have had those before as well for yeah, those, workouts. They, 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 they taste good. They taste amazing. So we've definitely come a long way in terms of taste and flavor. I mean, absolutely. Listen, I remember my first protein supplement that was recommended to me by my 12th grade social studies teacher was <laughs> it, it was designer way. And it was the most horrible taste. <laughs> in the universe. And then yeah. later on came muscle milk. And I think from that point on, we yeah. started really seeing some good tasting proteins. Yeah. And then better tasting protein bars and better quality protein bars. So we've come a long way in the supplement. Absolutely. Protein, protein bars and uh, flavored, even flavored water. 
is completely different now than when totally different. Know. Remember Mio? I feel like those died yeah. off. People <laughs> used to use them and like, yeah, put them in their water bottles and just like a little squirt. <laughs> so instead of powder, you had uh, the liquid. Yeah. All right. So moving along, the last one, which I think is probably save the best for last or save the most bogus for last. Yeah. Detox. <laughs> In 2009, I think I talked about this before. In 2009, a investigative report of 15 detox program manufacturers found that none could provide a clear cut list of the harmful substances actually being eliminated by their own products (laughs) and that no two products even defined detox in the same way. Of course. So marketing. What does detox actually mean? And actually, before I go into that, I will get into, I read a few, there were a few case studies that I looked at with uh, patients that went to their doctors and reported issues. And they found that it was as a result of the detox yeah. it was supposed to support their organs that actually did the opposite. Yogi tea was a big one. And Yogi tea caused in a 60 year old woman, acute liver failure. She was drinking it three times a day, went to the doctor with reported issues. And then they found that she had acute liver failure. And then another one was green smoothie cleanse, which caused acute oxalate nephropathy, which I will say she was probably predisposed to kidney stones. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing with a lot of these products is you don't even know what's in them. And there are things that will actually do the opposite and just put more quote unquote toxins in your Mm. body and stir up your organs a little bit. The whole concept of detox. Let me tell you what happens with detox. Now, there are a couple of things that we know supplement wise that actually detox like N-acetylcysteine, which was the recent supplement that FDA actually took off the shelves because there was some association with glutathione and, and COVID. Mm-hmm. So they were like, oh, we'll t- we're pulling this off the shelf, which kind of sucks. But NAC is something that they use in hospitals when you have acetaminophen yeah. poisoning, right? So yeah. you overdose on Tylenol, they're going to give you NAC because it helps to, uh, it helps for the Tylenol to clear from your liver. The other thing is Tudka, which is a derivative of a bile salt that's created by your liver which has been shown to promote healthy liver enzymes. So if your liver liver enzymes are out of whack, that might help for your liver to function better. But outside of those two supplements, I don't, there's some claims on like milk thistle. I don't really buy into the milk thistle stuff really, but um, there's evidence for whole foods. And this is where I get into, if you really want to detox, you want to pull the crap out of your diet, you want to eat more whole foods. When it comes to detoxing, I think why detox is so appealing to people is rapid weight loss. And you see like this before and after this person lost 10 pounds. A lot of it is cutting out whole foods and a lot of it is cutting out carbohydrates. And if you're doing like a juice cleanse, you end up depleting glycogen, just like you do on like a keto diet and you lose 10 pounds in like a week or two. And that seems appealing Mm -hmm. to people but you're not actually losing weight. So like weight loss is one thing where people are like, oh, I'm going to quick, I'm going to kickstart my weight loss with a detox, but you're not, you're just basically just get eliminating glycogen and eliminating water from your body. Uh, but what we do know when it comes to de- detoxification is cruciferous vegetables that contain like broccoli, mm-hmm. for example, that contain sulforaphane is shown to have detoxification properties and help to upregulate your liver's detoxification and antioxidant activity. So that's something that you'll want to do is you'll want to ramp up your vegetable intake and you'll also want to ramp it up and your whole grain intake from a standpoint of consuming more fiber, especially soluble and or fermentable fiber can enhance detoxification both directly and indirectly, directly by binding bile and its associated toxins, thus facilitating their excretion, kind of the same way that uh, certain certain types of fiber will reduce cholesterol because they'll bind to bile and eliminate the cholesterol and the bile out of your system. So your body's not going to produce more cholesterol because that bile is gone. And also indirectly by feeding the bacteria in your digestive tract, which some of them create short chain fatty acids and other metabolites that can act on the liver and kidneys to increase their ability to excrete toxins. Your body will do this if you're feeding it the appropriate foods. So a high fiber diet and a diet high in vegetables that contain sulforaphanes will help you to detoxify both your colon and your liver and kidneys. 
Yeah, it's basically about feeding your body well. We talk about building stress resilience, or at least this is what I talk about when I tell clients about detoxes. They want to come in and detoxify their system and cleanse and get the, the bad stuff out. I'm like, well, here's the thing. Your body needs to build that resiliency against stress. So that type of stress on your liver from maybe drinking during the holidays or eating crappy food or not paying attention to the balance of your meals, you can easily do that by cleaning up the quality of your food. That's number one way to detoxify, quote unquote, detoxify your system is just clean up the quality. A lot of my clients do that in January. I have clients that are doing that now. We start putting more balanced meals back together where they had a little bit of freedom over the holidays and they notice huge changes, not just in how they feel, but how what their how their bodies look and how they change their performance in the gym, things of that nature. Again, it goes back to people thinking that a detoxification and quickly pulling things out is going to make this rapid change so that they quote unquote function better. And then a kick starts, but the kickstart is all about habits, behavior, and change. So we know that, okay, if you remove all of the foods that maybe make you sluggish and tired, and then you put them back in, in the way that they were in three months ago, they're going to make you sluggish and tired again. So this is really about finding balance, making sure that you're getting an adequate amount of all of the nutrients that you need to function well. And that's based off of the individual. So, you know, the, the reason why the detox really fires me up is because so many people will come to me and be like, my friends did this detox, so I want to do it. And I'm like, OK, well, first of all, let's take a look at what you're doing right now and how that may affect you versus your friend. And no offense to your friend, but. She's not no Your longer doing the detox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's an idiot. She's not no longer doing the detox and the water weight that she gained that she lost, she gained back. So how much of this is really legit? And are you really looking to make this a priority in terms of making you healthier or are you just looking for a quick fix? I mean, listen, Nicole, uh, to that point also, what I find frequently is when people come to me and they're like, I'm not especially I get a lot of women with this. Yeah. I don't poop enough. I poop once every 3 days. And then I'm like, all right, cool. Let's change that. We'll add more vegetables. We'll add some whole grains. Now, all of a sudden, you're pooping Drink twice some a day. more water. Yeah. Right? And they think that go ahead. that's detoxification. That's food's detoxification. Not, food's not sitting in your colon. Right. When we right. talk about when we say that uh, uh, meat, quote unquote, like sticks, sticks to yeah. your ribs. Right. That's what people say. That's the expression yeah, sticks to you. That do you know what changes that? You know what helps the, the meat and, and all the byproducts and everything pass through your colon is yeah, couple that with. Fiber, a high fiber diet, more water, right? That's cleansing your system. So really just focusing on changing your habits and changing your foods. This product that you're going to do for a week that isn't really going to detoxify you. If anything, it's going to work in the reverse way for you. That What is that? What's the long-term strategy? You can well, have your again, body constantly detoxifying itself by just nourishing it with the foods that it's supposed to be having. Right. And again, I'm, I'm going to keep saying the word force, because if you're taking a product that, quote unquote, forces your body to detoxify when a it may not need to or b it's going it's doing it too harsh and too fast in a, you can do it with healthy food and exercise and sweating and pooping and sleeping and, you know, all of the things that naturally happen when you detoxify. If you're forcing that to happen, the, again, the pendulum swings the other way, people. It it can help in the short term, but in the long run, it's going to swing back and really kick you in the ass. So you have to really pay attention to what it is that you're trying to do in the long run. And I've seen so much detox for January. I mean, it's everywhere. Like jumpstart your new year and cleanse your body and detox all of the holiday, whatever. You really can do that by just getting back to the nitty gritty and the foundation of what you need to do for healthy food for your particular body. Got to be individualized. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.